So today on Too Close to Call, I have with me the esteemed author, Robert Draper, who is a writer for the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic, but most presently today, the author of Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Robert, thanks for podcasting with me in the midst of your media tour. Sure thing, David. Thanks for having me on. So Robert's book, I should explain to listeners, really is not a wholly Trump-based books. There's a lot of Trump-based books out there, but it really follows the players that have spawned out of the MAGA movement and have really grown in power since Trump's loss in this. I don't even know if we can call it a post-Trump party because he's, he's still so present, although it's, it, it tracks since Trump's loss through January 6th and then up really into the point where we're reaching, which is the first midterm election of the Biden administration. And you spent a lot of time on Marjorie Taylor Greene, a lot of time on Paul Gosar out of Arizona, sort of the more fringe, radical players of the Republican Party. I was very struck, actually, towards the end of your book, when you go down to Rome, Georgia, and meet Marjorie Taylor Greene at an event, and she's a little bit surprised that you are showing up and you sort of have a question around her, which I want to get to. But my question around her, as I am with all of these, these characters in the Republican Party, is, is she faking it or is she a true believer? You know, we read so much about like Lindsey Graham. I think he sort of acknowledges that he's sort of in on the joke and winks and, and sort of knows that that Trump is off his rocker in some ways, but says like, this is the party now. I got to do what I need to do to be relevant and to be a senator. So I'm wondering, given the amount of time that you've spent with Marjorie Taylor Greene, is she faking it or is she, is she a true believer in everything that she says? Sure, David. I guess my answer to that would be that she believes enough of it. You know, that's, um, yes, she is aware that she hyperbolizes for effect, and I'm being, and by for effect, I mean um, to uh, broaden her her standing in in social media circles to increase online donations, etc. But yeah, fundamentally, she does believe that that um, Democrats are godless and corrupt. That that Trump was the greatest president of our lifetime. That the election was stolen. Um, that America, as we know it, is being chipped away at by the left until it becomes unrecognizable. She believes all of that, and you know, regardless of how she states it in a manner that um, is. Uh, sufficiently outrageous to get her attention for the day. Um, these are precepts that she embraces for sure. So I want to read the part that really struck me as I was finishing your book. You have obviously written about George W. Bush and you, and you write about, you know, doing interviews inside the White House during his presidency. The question you most often fielded from others was, is he as dumb as he seems? And now I anticipated a similar question about Green. Is she as dumb and crazy as she seems? And you write, in both cases, the answer was a qualified no. Green tended to speak fluently in paragraphs and nearly always without the benefit of notes in a way that Bush never did. She was not a dummy. So I think, you know, for many on the left, people who don't like her, 
they probably think she's, you know, a wackadoodle. But in reading your portrayal of her, she's more sophisticated than I think conventional wisdom allows. Yeah, I mean, I think the look, it's it's um, it's right and proper maybe for you know Green's detractors to say that she she believes in crazy things. She believes crazy stuff, uh, and that um, and that she is way outside of the mainstream of American politics when it comes to her actual beliefs. But in terms of who she is and how she has um, become a person of significant influence in the Republican Party, she has shown a level of strategic savvy that um, has been hiding in plain sight. And, and you know, for those people who have the point of view that, look, this person is just all she wants is attention. Don't give her attention. And the, the corollary kind of being then that if you don't give her attention, she'll just simply like, you know, dwindle into nothingness. The reality is that she has gained all this influence without, you know, well before I wrote anything about her, I actually bore witness to it, to this person who came to Congress, you know, um, as a QAnon you know, conspiracy theorist and in her, month, in her first month in office, Gets stripped of her committee, committee assignments, but she didn't go away. Instead, she rose this. She she raised this incredible amount of money in the first um, FEC quarter, three point two million dollars. Today is the fourth biggest fundraiser among the two hundred and ten House Republicans. Two of those are in leadership, and so that a freshman would do this is kind of jaw dropping. That she that her endorsement has been coveted by high profile Republican candidates like J.D. Vance in Ohio and Carrie Lake for governor in Arizona is also notable and that Trump you know, himself has actually talked to her um, repeatedly about her being his running mate, something that in my view probably won't happen, but still that she- And she even dismisses that. that. She even dismisses, she says, the RNC would never allow me to be on Trump's ticket. Right, yeah, well, she, she, she doesn't so much dismiss it as recognize the headwinds against it. She's actually said to me that you no, know, she would really like to have it. And, and, yeah. uh, and she has as her chief calling card that she's loyal to Trump. And Trump, you know, after Mike Pence being his VP, clearly prizes having a number two person who's loyal. So, so all of which is to say that, like, um, you know, she's, um, uh, I mean, she's become a person of considerable power, most of all, because she is the proximate MAGA warrior at a time when Trump no longer occupies office and the MAGA constituency that comprises uh, the Republican base. They want a brawler. They want, you know, they want someone out there and she fulfills that yearning for them. And you even intimate, I think, that Green or her aides think that at some point Trump has maybe gone soft and that he's gone a little too mainstream. I think they're watching a CPAC speech of his and they look at him as now conventional, which what is. They do, well, they, what they look at him as too, um, overly replicable, you know, the, the, um, uh, and I was really kind of stunned when um, her aides told me that they had read a tweet written by of all people, Chris Hayes of MSNBC, in, in which Hayes had said, you know, the Trump's problem is is his, his success that he's gotten so much attention that now he's got all these mini me's, all these people mimicking him, and now he sounds ordinary. He sounds like the rest of them, and yeah. and really that's a cautionary tale for Green herself, as, as she and her own people see it. That uh, she's got all these mimics in Georgia and elsewhere, and distinguishing herself from them, and for that matter, distinguishing herself today for whenever you know, outrageous things she said yesterday are now among the issues that preoccupy her. 
She also tells you that she's a subscriber to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, which was another wow moment for me because I feel like anyone in the MAGA movement sees those very established mainstream entities, powerful mainstream entities as the enemy. And she, she's like, I'm a subscriber. Yeah, yeah. I, though I got to say, I mean, I haven't seen You don't believe that? that? I don't see evidence that she's read it. I mean, it may well okay. be that, that, I mean, you can spend your campaign funds on all sorts of things. And it may well be that she just spent, you know, a couple hundred bucks a year, you know, on a Wall Street Journal and New York Times uh, what does that tell you that she would admit that? Because I feel like Trump would never admit that. He'd say, right. oh, unsubscribe to the Washington Post and the New York Times. The fact that she's telling you is she's just trying to get more established. In fact, that she cooperated with you. Does, yeah. she, does she want more establishment legitimacy than she's sort of leading on to others? Yeah, well, I'll separate those two. First, to the matter of why she would mention that about the New York Times. I do think that she um, really does want to be seen as normal, not as this fire eater, not as this crazy okay. person, but someone who possesses beliefs that, in fact, a lot of people subscribe to. She she um, impressed that upon me more than once that, um, you know, not just conservatives, but uh, independents and some Democrats have come up to her and said, you know, hey, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm with you. It, it kind of reminds me, frankly, of when um, Eric Trump had told me during the 2016 election cycle that he was sure that his dad was going to take New York because he had all these people come up to him and say, you know, in, in like a New York deli or something or on the street and say, hey, I really support your dad. And not a terribly scientific, you know, means of, of prognosticating the outcome. But but uh, the other part of it is as to why she talked to me. I mean, look, it wasn't an overnight proposition, man. I mean, it took me over a year to get my first interview with her. And I spent a lot of time in her district attending public events of hers, doing all this reporting on her, then meeting with aides and impressing upon them that I knew a lot of things about her. And I think yeah. that, that, that uh, you know, they, after a while, convinced her, you should, you know, hear this guy out. He's, he's done a lot of work. He knows about you. And he's not just researching the weird QAnon stuff. And, and uh, yeah. so she was still wary when she met me. But I think then, you know, she like crossed the psychological Rubicon because, I wasn't, you know, emitting sulfur fumes, you know, I have a Southern accent like she does. And, and I'm, you know, seem to take on the guise of an actual human being, which probably blew to smithereens her notion of what a New York Times reporter was. A great lesson of persistence for all journalists out there. I was surprised about the access you got with her, given, you know, your New York Times. And it, it seems like you did just win her over. At least she trusted you. I'm wondering, has she reacted to the book? at all and how she's portrayed or have you heard from her team i've heard from her team and i've heard from her and and i think that um while they have object i had been straight with her and with them throughout i said there's going to be a lot in the book that you don't like at all oh. but i'm going to be i'm going to be fair i'm going to be factually accurate i'm also going to be humane in the sense that there's just some stuff relating to her personal life or whatever that i'm not interested in and that i don't think is germane when considering her as a political force. I think that, that she has espoused some really, really dangerous things, but what she's done in her private life is of no regard to me. And that stuff um, didn't appear in, in the book. And I think that they came to recognize that um, that I was on the level. So yes, I have heard from them. And, and she's not uh, mad about the book, though. I mean, it's hard to parse mad. You know, she's uh, um, she does not like any suggestion that she's crazy. She doesn't like any suggestion. Yeah. It, it, she did the, the whole recapitulation of her QAnon days. She didn't like, but I told her it was coming, you know? Right. And so it was, it was not a surprise. It was still, still, I suppose, isn't pleasant for her to read, but, um, but 
as again, I was on the level with her and I think they they recognize that. So I want to try to kick this forward with her a little bit, given that we're at the doorstep of a midterm election where it looks like Republicans are likely to take back the House, although there's some dispute around that. You know, she has she told you she is all in on the GOP civil war. So I'm wondering, given your reporting on her and knowing and your reporting on the House leader, Kevin McCarthy, how is he going to be able to handle Marjorie Taylor Greene if Republicans retake the majority next year? And McCarthy's goal is probably going to be wanting a contrast with Joe Biden propping up if it's Trump or whoever the Republican nominee is to win back the White House heading into 2024. How is he going to handle Marjorie Taylor Greene? And do you think he can can he do it? Yeah, I mean, you know, David is a longtime political journalist that it's kind of axiomatic that that the easy part is when you're in the minority, because all you do is just like sit around and say no to everything that the majority power does. And 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 yet that hasn't proved to be very easy for McCarthy, there have been all these food fights. There has been this intramural, you know, as Green puts it, civil war between the MAGA Republicans and what she believes to be the Republicans in name only rhinos, um, of which, you know, Nancy Mace, Dan, Dan Crenshaw, and others are, um, you know, the, um, at the forefront in her view. So um, McCarthy, first and foremost, wants to be speaker. He, he made the considered decision back in. January when he went to Mar-a-Lago, January of 2021, um, uh, to uh, to court Trump, believing that um, without the MAGA base, um, the uh, you know the 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 floor caves in uh, for any chance that that he has to win back the majority and to be speaker. So um, along with courting Trump has meant courting um, Trump's ally in the House, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that has taken the form of him, first and foremost, not um, in any way disciplining her when she's, um, uh, you know, said some outrageous things. Um, secondly, defending her and threatening Democrats after they stripped her of her committee assignments that uh, there'll be payback when when uh, when he's in charge. And then and then more recently by talking, assuring her that she will get not just her committee assignments back then, but she will get his words, better assignments. She said, okay, I want judiciary and oversight. Right. It seems very likely that that's what she's going to get. She's been in high level policy meetings. She sat, sat directly behind McCarthy when he unveiled his commitment to America. So there is every reason to believe that, um, that, uh, uh, that green is going to be in the center of these policy discussions, and Green has made clear to me, David, that, that uh, you know, for her, policy discussions doesn't mean we're going to compromise the way we did in 2017 and 2018. No, we're going to go with a hard right agenda, and if we don't do that, there's going to be war. And the oversight committee, we should just point out to listeners, that is the committee that is going to investigate Dr. Fauci. It's going to go after Hunter Biden. It is going to be sort of the cable news uh, festival of of of. Um, you know, just it's going to be a lot of what the second term of Biden is defined by, I think, in the media sphere. And if she has a, a, a perch on there, she's going to probably dominate a lot of those hearings and, and get a lot more of national attention. Do you expect that? What she, yeah, it's what she has in mind. And and uh, Jim Comer, who um, is expected to be um, the chair of oversight if the Republicans retake the House, um, said to me in a statement, we would welcome Marjorie Taylor Greene on oversight. And so yes. and she has said to me, you know, I think I'd be really good at it. 
And she said to me, I think there's going to be a lot of investigations. You named a couple of them. I think there'll be immigration and DHS related investigations, investigations pertaining to the D.C. jail, which she believes has now become a home for the politically persecuted J6ers. Uh, and almost assuredly outside of uh, oversight and instead on judiciary, there will be an impeachment inquiry. I mean, since Green, after all, literally the first full day in office, uh, President Biden was greeted by um, Green offering articles of impeachment against him. So so we know that train is coming down the track. So you think, but will that get support of Republican leadership beyond Marjorie Taylor Greene and sort of the very far right flank? Do you think an impeachment inquiry will get a stamp of approval from Kevin McCarthy? Well, we so anticipating this, we heard... McCarthy say to Punchbowl, I guess, a few days ago that, look, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not sure that, that this is really what the country wants to go through. I think he's flicking at, you know, um, real concerns that can help him maybe assure independence and suburbanites and thus, you know, vote for the Republicans in the general. But now I think when when push comes to shove, and I think that, that Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gates and, and um, Boebert and, and the like are pushing for this and raising funds online off of it, and um, and right wing, you know, uh, not just talk radio, but you know, every other available um, uh, outlet in the right wing media ecosystem, talking about this nonstop. It's going to be very, very hard for McCarthy to wage a basically lonely battle. And of course, we know where Trump is, and we know that Trump will be fanning those flames too. Right. And so, for him to defy. Uh, the, the the real leader of the Republican Party straight out of the gates strikes me as implausible. So Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, have taken very different approaches to Donald Trump. McCarthy, as you know, mentioned, you know, gone down, has gone down and sort of kissed the ring. McConnell has not spoken to the former president as far as we know, you know, sort of privately, I think, discuss has, you know, has a, a disdain for him, I would say. But but doesn't want to rock the boat. I'm wondering how would you analyze their approaches to Trump and the MAGA movement and how you think that would play out if, if they're in power, if they, they're both wielding majorities next year and which will, will be more effective in keeping the Republican Party coalition together and keeping, keeping Trump happy I, I don't know if that's the right description yeah. but um yeah, i guess yeah. not a nuisance to what they want to right. accomplish sure yeah i mean as you correctly point out david i mean unlike kevin mccarthy uh mitch mcconnell believes that his party would do well uh to uh to keep their distance from trump to turn the page on trump um to ignore him unlike liz cheney um mccarthy's of the view that you don't turn the page on someone and you don't ignore them by ceaselessly talking about them so he's decided he has said his piece on trump and the way to move away from him is just simply pretend that he doesn't exist i think strategically that has not worked out very well for him um mcconnell has been of the view that um, first he really really tried to play in the republican Senate primaries in hopes of getting his ideal candidates and and that it didn't turn out as planned. It didn't turn out as planned in Georgia or in um, Ohio uh, or in you know a bunch of places, Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, and so now he has a fallback view, McConnell does, and that's that okay, 
So these MAGA senators, um, hopefully they will get elected because I'd rather they be elected than Democrats. They'll hopefully vote for me for majority leader. And then um, I'll be the guy who sort of moderates them, uh, institutionalizes them, as mm-hmm. it were, you know, uh, habituates them to the Senate, the ways and, uh, and customs of the Senate. But again, I don't think that we've seen him do that effectively with Josh Hawley, with Tom Tuberville. Uh, uh, um, uh, and Ron Johnson. So there's not much indication that he's going to beat back Trumpism from within. That that then that then does like you know create a very interesting scenario that you you know were were you know hinting at in the dynamic between say a Speaker uh, McCarthy and a Majority Leader McConnell or even a Minority Leader McConnell as to um, what to do about Trump, since um, I, I really do believe that McCarthy will at any, um, when, whenever necessary, and it'll probably often be necessary, um, extol Trump, uh, listen to Trump, and um, do as the Trump base wants, which is not what McConnell wants. Did you get much insight into the relationship between McConnell and McCarthy in particular, just because I, I don't feel like they're particularly close and they sort of, I think, different worldviews on on politics and how to handle it. But did you get any more specific insight into their relationship and how it could inform second half of the Biden administration? Yeah, they have a decent relationship, but it's not a very, very close one. And uh, and McConnell also has. Um, so, I mean, the, if if indeed the Republicans win back both the House and the Senate, um, or even if they don't win back the Senate, but McConnell remains leader, then we will see, you know, a um, how this relationship takes place. Until that point, McConnell has largely been of the view that, um, look, whatever happens on the other side of the building is outside of my control. Um, McCarthy has, he's got a tough job right now. That job is to, you know, keep his conference together, win back the majority. It's, I'm, I've got really nothing to say beyond that. I've got my own tough assignment. Uh, The only time that he has really stepped outside of that, McConnell, was when he called out Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, saying that her loony lies and conspiracy theories were a cancer on the Republican Party. But notably, he said a cancer on the party, which was McConnell's way of saying, now it's my business because um, it's bad for business when Marjorie Taylor Greene is alienating people. That makes it more difficult for me to maintain power. Uh, so he wasn't doing this you know, for ethical reasons. He was doing it um, uh, yeah. vis-a-vis the care and feeding of the Republican Party. I just wonder how sustainable McConnell's approach is in a, in a looking towards the next two years, if you've got a Republican House majority and emboldened Marjorie Taylor Greene and emboldened Matt Gates, you know, if you've got a J.D. Vance or a Blake Masters and his caucus and you've got Trump getting louder because every story is going to be, be about is he running? You know, can McConnell really hold it all together? I mean, he always has. He has for decades. Wow. He's maintained his leadership position. But I just wonder if this moment is a different one. I, I, I tend to, I mean, I think your question answers itself, and I, and I tend to agree with that answer, that, that, uh, that, um, that McConnell has now reached a point um, after which uh, his control begins to, you know, his, his grip begins to loosen. I mean, again, considering the scenario as you just described it, David, I mean, it's um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Boebert, they're, they're always 
you know, bad talk, trash talking McConnell. You know, they think he's a rhino. They think he's an accommodationist. When push comes to shove and the Republicans, if they do maintain control over the House, then they're going to be trying to enact legislation and they're going to be furious if McConnell doesn't push hard enough for it. Some of the stuff that McConnell is going to view as zany. Like, so let's imagine the debt ceiling, for example. McConnell has generally played the role of the adult in the room who cuts 11th hour deals and, and uh, manages to raise the debt ceiling. Well, there's a lot of Republicans who, who actually just think it's time to stop doing that. And right. uh, or at minimum um, to do that only if major concessions are extracted from the Biden White House. And I think those concessions would be viewed by both Biden and on the other side of the building by McConnell as poison pills, you know, just completely untenable, you know, like uh, um, let's um, ban immigration of all kinds for four years, which is a Marjorie Taylor Greene pet view, or, you know, or it needs to accompany some legislation of a nationwide ban on abortion or a you know stripping of, of um, gun safety laws or environmental protections meant to address climate change, all sorts of things that I think that, that McConnell would object to. And then you can see, you know, the kind of uh, civil war atmospherics that would just take place in broad daylight. Uh, and, I, and I'm not sure that in that whole scenario, I mean, McConnell may prevail legislatively, but he's going to lose a lot along the way, too, because, I mean, that's he has managed pretty cleverly to navigate the reality that um, Trump um, uh, has a stranglehold over the base of the Republican Party. But that is still the reality. And it just seems like it's uh, the, the clock is ticking, you know, before uh, that reality comes at the expense of McConnell's grip on power. I want to conclude on election denialism, which I think is a core of the mass delusion permeating yes. the Republican Party. Again, going back to your book, you have a scene which opened my eyes in Fort Worth, Texas, of how this has trickled down to a mayoral contest. And I believe where one of the losing candidates challenges the count, even though a Republican won the mayoral race, and it was another candidate who said that there, this the election was fraudulent. Can you talk a little bit about how Concerning this is that it's not only about who wins a Senate race now or the pres who wins electoral votes in Arizona, but but this election denialism is now filtering all the way down to the local level. That's right. Yeah. I mean, this, so you're referencing um, a tableau of, in my book that took place uh, last year uh, in 2021 in the Republican primary for mayor of Fort Worth, Texas, in which this guy named Steve Panante, who was the most MAGA of the, you know, I mean, now, you know, he's proof that Tip O'Neill is finally wrong, that all politics has become national. And, and like every, everything he was right. running on had nothing to do with potholes and everything right. to do with, you know, the, uh, critical uh, race theory, or... <laughs> yeah, critical race theory and protecting Fort Worth from, you know, illegal immigration and all that. And, yeah. and uh, so he comes in a distant fourth, he concedes. And then a few days later says, hang on, not so fast. You know, actually, I've, I've looked at the turnout figures. They look suspicious to me, awfully high. Yep. Um, we, I call for an audit. I call for an audit of this. And, and uh, it's absolutely nuts, but it's something that we're, we're seeing everywhere. And it, and it speaks to a, a more encompassing um, view held by tens of millions in the Republican Party, David, that, that the election being stolen in 2020, so they believe, is actually proof uh, in a more encompassing sense 
of how America as they know it has been stolen away from them and how so many of the things that they trusted throughout the years have now been proven to be a fraud. So there is election fraud, but there's also medical fraud in the form of COVID vaccines. There is media fraud. There is, there is monetary fraud. There is judicial system fraud. And this in turn requires endless investigations, endless um, audits. And in the meantime, before we, we finally get to the bottom of it, the truth is up for grabs. The truth is whatever you say it is. And, and, and now that word truth has been quite literally appropriated by Donald Trump with his social media platform, Truth Social, and, right. um, and members of the right wing eco media ecosystem with their names like Real America's Voice and One America News. I mean, that's they um, so so this is the mass delusion, you know, and it's uh, a literal delusion on mass in which people not only believe um, the, the election was stolen, but basically are willing to believe almost anything that they feel like uh, they once possessed that they no longer have, that it must have been stolen from them somehow, that there must be a fraud perpetrated on them. That's the greater delusion. And that is really concerning vis-a-vis -vis the state of our democracy. And now we're looking at a bunch of Senate races, governor's races that are within margin of error. And I just am concerned as a journalist that we're going to be now we're going to see more challenges to elections. If there's a problem in Pennsylvania on election night of a, you know, of, and there always are, always are problems. We should, we should reiterate, there's never an completely perfect election, but now the tiniest problem gets extrapolated into a mass conspiracy. And I just worry that in 2022, we're going to be spending as reporters in November and December, looking at legal challenges. Everything is now going to go to court if an election is close, or even if it may not be close. Sure, it's profoundly anti-democratic, and and uh, um, and but you know a roadmap or a kind of template has been set. I mean, as you're referencing in terms of legal challenges, in terms of phony electors, in terms of uh, um, constant recounts and and audits, and and uh, um, we have you know um, major candidates like Carrie Lake, a gubernatorial candidate from Arizona, refusing to say whether or not she'll concede if she loses she said right. i will i will concede you know if it what? is a fair election well right. there we go it's you know i think we've heard this you know before and and uh, and, and so yeah I, I think that that we again can see this train coming down the track and it's uh and you know it's it's really barreling towards our democratic institutions and, and when you when you begin with tens of millions of republicans already convinced that a major presidential election has been stolen and in no way disabused of that notion two years later, then you have every reason to suspect that if they don't get what they, the satisfactory outcome in November, they'll cry stolen election and there will be politicians standing alongside them doing so. The book is Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Robert Draper, thanks for joining me on Too Close to Call. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, David.